If you were listening to the program yesterday, you will know that we were chatting with the former mayor of Delta and now city councillor Lois Jackson. I would not feel the same way with a person that I didn't know whether that person actually, you know, had been tested, whether the vehicle was actually tested. Uh, whether they had insurance, like on and on are the questions. That uh, was Jackson talking about safety concerns she has with ride sharing, saying that while she's had good experiences with cabs in Delta for the past 20 years, she wouldn't use ride sharing because, well, for one of the reasons being that she wouldn't feel as safe. Now, not everybody agrees with uh, Jackson's uh, take on that. She's also bringing forward a motion to council tomorrow that asks council to write a letter to the Passenger Transportation Board asking that they halt immediately their approval for ride-sharing in the province. If that motion is approved, it would then go to the UBCM for an emergency motion of the same. Well, let's bring in Dylan Kruger because he is also a counsellor in Delta and has a much different take when it comes to ride-sharing. Dylan, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've uh, heard the comments from former mayor and current councillor Lois Jackson about ride sharing. What are your thoughts about it? Well, first of all, uh, in my opinion, this motion doesn't belong anywhere near a council table. Uh, this is an issue that is under the full jurisdiction of the trans- uh, Passenger Transportation Board. Municipalities don't have the authority to, to comment on this issue, and I'm going to be opposing this motion tomorrow on behalf of every frustrated Metro Vancouver resident who's ever been told uh, by a taxi driver that they can't get a safe ride home because they live too far away or they have a, uh, they didn't have any cash on them or they simply had to wait too long to get a cab. Uh, Metro Vancouver residents have been desperately waiting for this service for a very long time and that's no more real than in Delta where we already have existing transportation challenges. Um, and I think you make an interesting point in that councils can talk about this all the, they want and they can pass motions or bring motions forward. Uh, but we've already been given a response from the Transportation Ministry when asked, can local governments stop ride sharing? Uh, the answer from the ministry was no, uh, that all of that, uh, the, the yes, they provide business licenses, but when it comes to boundaries and ride sharing and vehicles and such, that is not uh, something that is decided on a civic level. Uh, so do you think it's a waste of time that councils even talking about this? Absolutely. I think it's a waste of time to be brought up at the municipal table. We have a lot of issues that we need to be dealt with municipally, and this serves as a a distraction that can make a good headline. But I I mean, as you said, the the province has been very clear. The Passenger Transportation Board has been very clear. Municipalities cannot refuse to issue a business license. Uh, We cannot prohibit ride-sharing from operating in our municipalities. And as of tomorrow, September 16th, uh, those Passenger Transportation Board regulations are are in effect. This really is an 11th hour effort here. Because it does seem strange, too, that even if councils did have that authority or were able to do that, uh, then we would be in some kind of scenario where somebody gets into an Uber or Lyft or some other ride-sharing car, say, in Richmond or Vancouver, and what, they're supposed to stop at the border? They can't go into Surrey or go into Delta? Well, and it's embarrassing also just the fact that British Columbia, we're the last major jurisdiction in all, all of North America that doesn't have ride-sharing. Other jurisdictions, other major Canadian cities have had this service for years. Uh, they've managed to sort themselves out. Taxis and ride-sharing have been able to get along. Uh, and to be clear, I, I, I totally agree. I think there's some aspects of taxi regulations that are antiquated. 
same issue that comes up with taxis and municipal boundaries. A, a taxi can pick me up in Delta and drop me off in Vancouver, uh, but then it can't take somebody up in Vancouver and bring them back to Delta. That's silly. That should be reformed as well. But let's not uh, punish incoming technology that's going to create more competition and badly needed supply uh, just because taxis are operating under an antiquated system. Uh, Councillor Jackson said she has concerns and that she's looked at what's happening in Seattle. Uh, anecdotally, I think, I'm not sure that she was quoting any specific study, but saying that there had been reports in Seattle and perhaps other places where there is ride sharing that people who were using ride sharing were doing so when, if it wasn't available, they would have either been walking, biking, or taking transit. And her concern was it was adding to the congestion on the roads. What do you say to that? Yeah, I've, I've heard that concern as well, especially as, as you know, we have a, a big congestion issue at the George Massey Tunnel and also at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Concerns that uh, ride-sharing vehicles would simply add to the traffic. Uh, but, but it's simply not true. In fact, it's the opposite. There's, there's um, options with ride-sharing that you don't get with traditional taxis. If I'm a commuter that commutes into Vancouver every day, I can turn on my ride-sharing app uh, and give someone a ride into work, uh, into downtown, and I can give someone a ride home in the in the evening as well. Then I can use the HOV lane, plus I'm getting somebody to pay my gas, and that person is taking their car off the road as well. Uh, ride-sharing drivers, by far and large, are not full-time drivers. They're often part-time drivers who do it as a bit of a side gig. Uh, so it's that additional um, you know, first kilometer, last kilometer travel that's really covered by ride-sharing. Uh, ride-sharing reduces incidences of impaired driving, reduces reliance on personal vehicles, and it also rather, I'd, I'd argue, it actually incentivizes public transit because you're not as reliant on having the car. And what about the issues of it not being a level playing field with taxis? Yeah, and, and to be clear, I, I do think that we need to change the regulations with regards to the taxi industry. There's a lot of modernization that needs to happen, whether it's the removal of, uh, of boundaries or, or perhaps more app-based technology. Uh, but I don't want to punish an incoming uh, service for that. A lot of the calls with regards to um, a level playing field have come with regards to capping the number of ride-sharing vehicles. But to cap the number of ride-sharing vehicles, it's kind of antithetical to the whole notion of ride-sharing, which is really at its core a service that has fluctuating supply uh, to meet fluctuating demand. So when there are a lot of people who are desperately looking for a ride home, drivers can see that and they can turn on their app and they can service those people. And when the demand is lower, those cars will get off the road. So they're self-regulating in that fact, and it really should be complementary to the existing services that are already out there. And do you think that the measures brought in by the transport- the Passenger Transportation Board when it comes to having a Class 4 license, uh, the criminal record checks, so the measures for safety for rideshare drivers, are they enough? Absolutely. And in fact, even more so, when you open your app, for anyone who's ever used apps like Uber or Lyft, you'll see exactly who your driver is. You have their name, you have their face, you have their license number, their car model, you have their rating uh, by previous uh, passengers who have been in their car who will rate their experiences. And drivers are held to a very high standard. You have to maintain you know, a four or five star rating if you want to have a, a, a good career uh, in this industry. So really, the transparency, this system is so transparent that it demands excellence from its drivers.
Uh, and that, that was something, too, that uh, we were talking uh, to Councillor Jackson about in that it's not the same as far as, as ratings. Imagine if they opened up taxis to the same rating system. I don't think they ever would. Uh, but just <laughs> anecdotally, what we hear from people, and not to say that all taxi drivers are bad, but certainly uh, as there are some bad rideshare drivers, like you said, they're not going to get the business, though, because they have bad ratings. Uh, but I think it would, would hugely change the taxi industry if they, too, were open to a rating system. System. Absolutely. And yes, there, there are some tremendous tra- uh, taxi drivers out there. I've had some tremendous experiences. I've also had some terrible experiences and I have lots of friends that have had the same. Uh, and Jill, I, I know you've heard the stories before where you're downtown at the end of the night and it's two o'clock and the buses have stopped running and the sky trains have stopped running. Uh, and it happens, especially the further out you are in the suburban communities like Delta and Surrey, uh, where you get refused a ride home at the end of the night, uh, where maybe you're alone and it's raining. And it's a, it's, a, it's a safety issue. So I would love to see taxis go to that standard of, I know some have already made the switch over to apps, but I think there's a lot of improvement. Uh, uh, also, to get cash out of the whole, the, the whole equation, we, we don't need to be in a system anymore where we're uh, using cash or, or credit cards. I also had a friend who was who was double charged once um, in a taxi cab on a, on a credit card called the, the taxi company and they weren't refunded that money. Uh, we're, we're in a system now where we can have uh, preloaded credit cards on our uh, taxi-based apps and have all of this transaction done um, you know, virtually. And that's really the direction I think everybody needs to be going. Uh, when the motion comes forward tomorrow night, I think we've heard anecdotally, I haven't spoken to the mayor about this, but Councillor Jackson said she had heard the mayor is uh, opposed to it, that he's in favor of ride sharing. How, have you talked to other councillors or do you have an idea on how things will go tomorrow? Yeah, I've spoken to the mayor and the mayor has uh, released a statement that he's opposed to the motion. He's fundamentally in support of ride sharing. He shares the same concerns, obviously, with regards to um, uh, to some ways that we can update the taxi industry. Uh, I've spoken to a few councillors and I won't speak on their behalf other than to say I'm pretty confident that this motion will fail tomorrow uh, and that we'll move on and uh, hopefully eventually get ride sharing uh, by the end of the year. All right. Well, Dylan, uh, we will talk to you about it again, I'm sure. But thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, we talk a lot about electric vehicles and how they are becoming more and more popular. We don't talk as much about hydrogen-powered vehicles, but that is the topic of some research being done at UBC. And a new study that was published this week shows what the infrastructure would look like to support a hydrogen car network in BC. And joining me to talk a little bit about this is lead author Hoda Talibian, and I hope I'm saying your last name correctly. Hoda is a PhD student in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Hello, Jill. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, We don't talk a ton about this. Like I said, we tend to focus more on electric vehicles. But tell us a little bit about the research and what it says about hydrogen cars and the possibility of hydrogen vehicles in B.C. Uh, Okay, Jill. Uh, We developed a complete uh, optimization model uh, to design the least expensive hydrogen fuel supply chain. Uh, for over the next 30 years in BC, and we included uh, like the current uh, BC government uh, environmental policies explicitly in the model. We wanted to examine their uh, the, this uh, policy effectiveness to reduce the hydrogen cost and the adoption of low emission hydrogen production pathways in BC. So we have, uh, what we have found out in this study was that uh, BC has a great potential to produce hydrogen at a competitive or even lower price 
than gasoline. And even if DC ends up with uh, very low hydrogen demand levels, like by 2050 that we studied, the monetary benefits of uh, emission reduction outweighs the higher cost of the hydrogen infrastructure adoption. And also, uh, in terms of policy, we have found out that the carbon tax and the low-carbon fuel standards, they they have to be implemented together to see the most benefits, both in terms of emission and cost reduction from this infrastructure. What would it look like, though, as an actual uh, supply chain model through the province? uh, actually, this infrastructure, uh, I can, uh, we call it uh, hydrogen supply chain. This composed of production plants uh, for, to produce hydrogen uh, and also central storage facilities to store hydrogen in form of gas and liquid and network uh, for hydrogen transport by liquid trucks, gas trucks, and uh, the option to have pipelines, hydrogen pipelines also in uh, province, and also the hydrogen refueling stations that could be built in major municipalities in D.C. So, for example, the production facilities, uh, they could be built um, all around D.C. They could be electrolyzers, which produce hydrogen uh, using hydroelectricity. Uh, It could be steam methane reformers, uh, which also equipped with carbon capture technology and also byproduct hydrogen uh, purification plants. Uh, they use uh, byproduct hydrogen from chemical plants. So uh, based on how demand grows over time, uh, the share of this production technology could change in the province. Also, in the refueling station, we could have small electrolyzers to produce hydrogen in the fueling station uh, and um, in uh, and also the network of hydrogen fueling stations. Uh, they, as I mentioned, I, it covers major municipalities like Metro Vancouver, uh, Kelowna, uh, Victoria, uh, Prince George. So uh, and all the all the connecting roads between them. So as I mentioned, depending on the hydrogen, uh, the demand growth, uh, this network uh, may use um, a combination of gases and liquid hydrogen and a, combi- a combination of delivery hydrogen uh, and uh, on-site uh, electrolysis. Yep. Is it something that you would vision then alongside the electric vehicles or something that would be completely on its own? Uh, we actually started this optimization model based on uh, light-duty uh, hydrogen vehicles. But uh, what we uh, want to include uh, in the model is the opportunity to include the uh, trucks from light-duty to medium-duty and heavy-duty trucks, and also the BC option to produce and then export hydrogen uh, uh, either to other provinces and also to uh, other countries. And you talked about the cost. So the cost of the vehicles, there are a couple of vehicles that are already available. Uh, Why is it, do you think, that they're they're not as popular or they don't get as much attention, say, as the electric vehicles? Uh, This is, um, you know, this is all about uh, the uh, government uh, vision towards uh, vehicles. if we have enough incentive, because the vehicles are like uh, more expensive, either like the uh, uh, battery electric vehicles are also expensive. But uh, if we have, if you have enough incentive, and if you have the infrastructure in place, because the hydrogen infrastructure is different uh, from uh, battery electric. Battery electric vehicles just just need chargers. 
but uh, the hydrogen infrastructure is more or less looks like gasoline infrastructure. As I mentioned, you need production, you need the storage, transportation, and then the fueling station. So uh, it's like uh, more uh, kind of the fueling infrastructure is more cost intensive. So it's uh, so we need government's uh, help. Uh, in terms of in, uh, incentives and also the help in, for the consumer to buy these vehicles both at the same time uh, to have this uh, infrastructure grow in BC. Yep. Right. And do you think that's kind of maybe some of the, whereas electric vehicles, the, the plug-in stations don't take a lot of space, they can be built yes. into new uh, condo buildings or towers, they're not that labor-intensive, whereas a hydrogen refueling station, like you said, it's kind of like a gas station or it does need that yep. infrastructure. So is it just, yes. it's a, it seems more labor-intensive. Yes. But uh, what we have with uh, fuel cell vehicles is that uh, you can basically have the same experience as you have with conventional gasoline or diesel vehicles. Like you have fast fueling, you have long distance travel uh, per refueling and also uh, similar performance in cold uh, climate conditions. So there are, um, so I can say that uh, basically battery electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles, they are both complementary solutions. Uh, so you cannot have battery without fuel cell and fuel cell without battery. So both of them can uh, contribute to uh, BC uh, uh, climate uh, targets because you know that uh, we have uh, that BC, uh, clean BC plan uh, uh, that uh, mandates all new vehicles sold by 2040 will be zero emissions. So either battery or uh, fuel cell or like as I said, mix of them uh, could take part. All right. And, and is that the main benefit, do you think, to uh, the fuel cell vehicle or what is the main benefit? Uh, as I said, the main benefit is the fast refueling uh, and long distance travel uh, because uh, for, uh, for light duty vehicles, you can have both uh, electric and fuel cells. Um, but when you're uh, thinking about long distance travel, when you think that you want to just uh, refuel in like less than five minutes, then um, fuel cell has more benefits. Also, uh, if you think of if you think of like by 2040 or by 2050, all the new vehicles will be become like electric. Then uh, for battery electric vehicles, if all of them are like electric, then you have great uh, you need great support from uh, 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 like. Uh, uh, the electricity uh, transmission lines, and uh, you may extend your peaks to easily like midnight or any any time uh, during uh, the day. So, but fuel cell electric vehicles, you can produce hydrogen whenever you need with different types of uh, uh, energy resources, and uh, this is more flexible, I think. All right. Well, it's interesting research, definitely. Uh, Hoda, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, a new poll, it was done by Research Co., finds that a good proportion of British Columbians, people who describe their ethnicity as non-European, have experienced discrimination. So let's bring in Research Co. President Mario Conseco to talk a bit more about the findings of this poll. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. What did you ask people in this particular bit of research? Well, just two simple questions. We wanted to know if they have experienced discrimination in their time in B.C. 
on account of their ethnicity? This is important because it's a very direct question. It's not about other things that may have happened, how you were dressed or anything of the sort. We wanted to figure out exclusively on the issue of ethnicity. And we find that there's only 22% of this BC residents of non-European descent who say that they've never experienced uh, discrimination. There's 11% who say that they have faced a significant amount. 22% say moderate and 36% say a small amount of discrimination in their time in BC. Interesting. And did people explain or did they answer what it was, what the discrimination was? Well, we we, uh, essentially gave them 11 uh, different things that they could have experienced that uh, that can be considered as discrimination that they may have uh, faced uh, in their time here. And the number one issue was uh, poor customer service, 24 percent. And that essentially translates into walking into a store and somebody who's definitely not listening to what you want to do or also suspicions that you're there to shoplift something or to steal something. That was the number one issue when, when, when we asked them. And how do people know that that is based on their ethnicity, that they're being treated that way because of their ethnicity, that it's not just uh, somebody in a store who's really bad at their job? Well, one of the things that, that we heard is that uh, in, in similar situ- scenarios or situations, they felt targeted and they felt that other people around, particularly when it came to this customer service issue, weren't really treated in the same way that they did. Um, something that was definitely direct was the number two issue, which is verbal harassment. You know, somebody who yells or, or uh, essentially says something uh, that, is, that can be considered as a slur, uh, 23% say that they face that. Uh, quite shocking to me because it's 26% for women, so you're more likely to be addressed in a vulgar manner that is uh, essentially harassment if you're a woman than if you're a man of non-European descent. Hmm, interesting. Uh, you said you gave, uh, so there were 11 uh, scenarios. What else did you ask people about uh, specifically if, if they had experienced Well, 17% told us that they were the subject of racist jokes. There's also 16% who said that they were mocked or ridiculed because of their ethnicity. And this one was interesting as well. Unfair treatment in the workplace and loss of a a potential employment opportunity also at 16%. So it's not something that is happening only in in the heat of the moment. Uh, Somebody says something to you and you don't ever face those uh, residents again. Um, We see people who feel that they haven't essentially been treated fairly at the workplace because of their ethnicity. And one of the things that was interesting is that this definitely changes with age. If you're over 55, you're less likely to believe that this happened to you. If you're 35 to 54 or 18 to 34, uh, the incidence of all of these things that we tested is definitely higher. In fact, there's only 27% of millennials who say that they've never faced any of the issues that we described. Well, it is interesting when you look at it uh, then based on age. So do you think, has it changed as far as the amount of discrimination or we're just more able to recognize it now? I think it's more an issue related to uh, the fact that we can tell what is happening now. I'm looking into the numbers for the over 55s. I don't necessarily believe that they uh, didn't face as much discrimination as their younger counterparts, but they maybe saw it as something that was definitely more likely to happen, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago when they were in the workforce or, then, or, or when the situation was a little bit different. I think what we see now is especially millennials becoming definitely uh, more in tune with the situation and recognizing some of these issues as uh, things that shouldn't be happening in the Canada that we live in now. 
It, it is definitely. And, and again, I'm not in any way trying to suggest that this doesn't happen because obviously it does happen. But when you look at something like people who say, well, I didn't get the promotion that I should have. I didn't get this opportunity at work and, and I was discriminated against because of my ethnicity. Uh, again, how do we know that it's absolutely that's the reason that somebody didn't get that opportunity or promotion? Well, it's a hard one, and I can understand how, you know, there might be some frustrations when something doesn't go your way and you uh, essentially look into it as something that had to do with your ethnicity in that sense. Uh, We ask them directly, and, you know, when I've asked about stuff like this in the past, uh, and we ask people without ethnicity uh, whether they lost uh, something that, that was offered to them or whether they were treated unfairly in the workplace, the numbers tend to be higher. So it's it's a little bit lower than than what we see when we ask people if they were treated unfairly for any reason uh, when it comes to their own ethnicity. Uh, You also asked people about exclusion uh, from social groups within work, uh, social groups within school, and some interesting findings there as well. Yeah, we have 11% of residents uh, who describe their ethnicity as non-European who say that they were excluded from social groups uh, either at work or at school. Uh, what's interesting here is a little bit of a gender gap. It's it's higher for men when it comes to work, and it's higher for women when it comes to school. So it's one of those situations where it really depends on the way uh, the sociological aspects are, are at work and, and specific things that you're facing in uh, moments of your life. Uh, I, I thought it was going to be the other way around. I thought maybe there will be a little more dis- discrimination for women at, at work than at school, but it was actually the other way around. And did it look at, did, did pe- were people able to identify, or I'm not even sure if you asked this, but the discrimination, where it was coming from, was it coming from people of European descent? Um, I don't really have the data on that question. It's an interesting one as well, because, you know, some of the things that we can see, and, and this is something that was also reported to us on, on, on the feedback form, there's always this moment of somebody who says, I, wa- I, I was... Uh, Um, discriminated, uh, but it was somebody who was looking like me, or maybe it's something that is related to my own ethnicity. Um, We didn't ask that, but it would be a fun one, and certainly an interesting one to ask in the future. Well, and especially given the the op-ed that was in the paper, the Sun and Province last week, was certainly sparked a lot of conversations about this. This particular poll, though, so this was done between the 6th and the 9th of this month, correct? Yes, this was conducted before we reached all this outcry related to the on editorial. I really wanted to get into this now because uh, of a couple of issues. One was the, the video uh, where we saw those racial slurs uttered in the Richmond a, a parking lot. And, and the other one is what is happening with the campaign. You know, we saw one of the candidates to become prime minister of the country saying that there's mass immigration that we should be uh, not happy with. Uh, and, and I thought, well, this is an interesting moment to try to figure out what is happening with discrimination and, and the way non-European residents feel about their life here in BC. Uh, it is. I'm glad you brought up that uh, the issue of uh, with the parking lot in Richmond, because I worked on that story as well. And what struck me is I went to that parking lot and asked people about it. And a good number of people that I talked to said, it's wrong, it's awful, but they weren't surprised. Yes. Well, this is definitely what I wanted to find out. You know, is, is, is this something that is happening to only a few people? Is this something that, that is happening to more of them? Uh, we are an extremely welcoming society. I've asked questions like this in other countries, and the numbers are through the roof. So even though it's a little bit sad to look at a situation like this and see three out of five non-European residents feeling that they have faced issues like this once, it's not nearly as bad as it is in other countries. 
All right. We will leave it there. Interesting research as always, Mario. Thank you so much for your time this morning, for coming on the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. Well, if you were following along this story, uh, anybody who is a dog owner, a pet lover, would have been so worried about Sammy the dog, the Vancouver dog that had been left with a pet sitter, a pet sitter that had been hired online, went missing. The family then sent, uh, spent some uh, very frantic time looking for the dog, actually left the dog bed out, and that's what led to finding Sammy. Somewhat injured, but safe and back with her family. Now, once Sammy was missing, during the search for this dog in East Vancouver, I was looking through Twitter and I was following along trying to find out what I could. And I came across a tweet from Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry saying that with the proliferation of new online P2P pet sitting services like at Rover.com operating in our city, I'll be asking our staff what kind of licensing and regulations we have in place and if not, why not? So I wanted to talk to Pete Fry more about this and he agreed. He is on the line with us now. Councillor Fry, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Nice to be here. Good morning. Uh, You tweeted that out that you wanted to ask staff about licensing and regulations. Uh, What have you found? Well, it's uh, actually, you know, what I've found is that this is a much bigger issue than uh, just this particular incident and and really uh, more widespread in the the whole sort of idea of the the gig economy and precarious work and the proliferation of all sorts of online peer-to-peer uh, services and 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 what kind of licensing and what standards are required to do these kind of operations and we have all sorts of uh, peer-to-peer offerings everything from nanny services to uh, operations like TaskRabbit that uh, give a variety of, of services to consumers but there's no basic uh, licensing requirement here in the city of Vancouver and I think you know as as consumers uh, you know, we all have a, a reasonable expectation that uh, a business operating in the city of Vancouver has met some basic sort of minimum standards, safety, design, that kind of thing. If you or I go into a, a restaurant or a hair salon or whatever, we expect that, that they have a business license, that they've met those standards. And, of course, there's nothing of that nature in, in these peer-to-peer services. So, you know, recognizing that Vancouver is an expensive city and the cost of living is high here, um, so we want to balance value for consumers and fairness for workers, but also basic minimum standards. And I think there's a a big gap here with this new sort of peer-to-peer economy. But isn't that the whole point in that if I go to a a bricks-and-mortar dog boarding kennel, I know that they have a business license. I know that they're a business operating in Vancouver or whatever city I live in. If I hire someone online, be it on Rover.com or Craigslist or any other platform, I know that I am hiring somebody who is is put it out there that they're a dog sitter, but they're not a business. Isn't there some onus on the consumer to know the difference? You know, and certainly in talking to the uh, Sammy's owner, they, there's a lot of guilt uh, and and beating himself up over over just that, not you know having having the spidey senses think say oh, this isn't totally kosher, and you know your yard's not that secure. Please don't let my dog out. Uh, but it's still, it didn't happen. But I think to the point of the, that reasonable expectation of folks to, if you get the service online, buyer beware. I, th- I think we need to recognize that 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 may be the case for somebody who has a more sophisticated understanding of it. But I think that increasingly people don't necessarily realize that uh, that, that that that's what they're setting themselves up for. And as websites look slicker and more sophisticated, oh, there's my dog in the background. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> 
as websites get more sophisticated and slick looking, I think people might be lulled into thinking that they are uh, getting a quality product when, in fact, there's no standards at all. And again, I'm in no way blaming Sammy's owner, and I'm I'm so happy that the dog is back and that things worked out for them. But but are we not letting one bad apple, one uh, dog sitter who clearly wasn't very good at it and didn't have a secure yard and was not good at communication when things went sideways? Uh, if 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 our knee jerk reaction, it seems, is to say we must regulate this, we must bring in all types types of red tape and regulation, isn't that kind of going against the whole point of having a gig economy? Uh, I think we've seen, even with just the uh, the introduction of rideshare, that we do need some degree of of regulation. You know, either insurance or um, oversight or standards or you know maximum number of cars on the road. And I think that's fair in the case of any of these new sort of economic ventures. Because I would argue that at the same time, you know, that if anybody can offer these services, uh, what is the value in 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 a bricks and mortar business actually applying for a business license? We have sixty six thousand business licenses that we give out in the city of Vancouver every year or that people pay for why should they pay for a business license and and not somebody else Uh, but even as it stands right now anybody with a child a human child could hire a babysitter a 12 year old off Craigslist to come and look after their child and you pay them whatever you want to pay your babysitter and you trust them Uh, that's not regulated are we suggesting that you can hire a babysitter for a human but for a dog sitter you have to have regulations well, and that's actually, you know, that's that's to my point of bringing up uh, that very service, uh, the, the child care services that are available online. There doesn't seem to be a lot of regulation around that, too. And it's, for instance, if I was to, if I wanted to open a child daycare in my home, which I could do, I would have to deal with Vancouver Coastal Health. I would have to deal with the city building department. I would have to go through quite a, quite a few standards and requirements to, to care for children in my home that weren't my own. And I think that that is a reasonable expectation. And I think as we're moving towards this sort of gig economy, and we may theoretically see it it impacting the bottom line for a lot of the bricks and mortar type operations that offer the same service, we need to be thoughtful and proactive about what that might look like. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm looking at it from my, my personal experience with this too, and that I once hired, not that long ago, I hired a dog walker through Rover.com. She was exceptional. exceptional. She was absolutely, she treated my dogs like her own. She was great. Uh, she was a UBC student that was just looking to make a little extra money. Uh, it seems to me that bringing in red tape and regulating it so that girl, that woman, would have had to get a license is, is overreach by the city. Well, you know, right now we have a city, uh, you know, if you want to have a home-based business in the city of Vancouver, you're you're on the hook for a $150 license that says that you can't have clients come over. And and so I think that there's a whole relook that has to, to come into, into how we do licensing, especially for home-based businesses, because I think the standard home-based business is not fair. And I think it's, it's onerous when you consider that uh, a, an Airbnb license in the city of Vancouver costs you $50 and you can have as many people as you'd like come by. So I think what I'm proposing is more of a relook and, and a look at the future of work. And I totally appreciate what you're saying about the UBC student uh, just making a few extra bucks. And I don't think we want to, I mean, whatever we do, and to be clear, there's nothing that we are doing right now. I'm, I'm just looking into this, um, needs to balance those sort of, you know, the fact that we are in an expensive city. So and we want to have fairness for work. We want to, we don't want to punish people, but we also want to make sure that we have value and safety for consumers. And I would also argue that, you know, in the in the context of this, these fellows who are operating a, a dog boarding in a residential home, I have no idea what their neighbors thought of that, but it sounds like these guys had just 
got the dog, locked her in a, in a room and went out to work. And I don't know, maybe the dog was barking all day. I have no idea. But I think that, that there needs to be some sort of standards and balance because I'm sure if you were living next door to a, a de facto dog boarding that had no standards and, and no accountability, you might feel a little bit differently about about that. Right. But don't we already have rules in place for that, be it no, noise rules, how many dogs can be in a certain res- or how many dogs a resident can own or have at a certain time? Uh, we do. We do. But we, you know, I think that's part of the point. We don't have um, specific standards for this new kind of operation. I mean, I think the, the proliferation of, of home-based businesses is, is a pretty new, uh, a new realm that we haven't, haven't really responded to just yet. And I think this is something that cities around the world are grappling with. You know, and we see it especially manifested with things like Airbnb. And so the idea is to, is to be a little bit more thoughtful and proactive about how we might uh, mitigate and anticipate any kind of impacts and concerns that these might come up. Right. And I guess the balance there being or, or the, the where you want to make sure or, or I think where it would go too far is if somebody has a backyard and they want to, to dog sit, do they really need to get a business license if they have a dog coming over and spending the day with them? No, but I think if they're if they're offering the service online and they're taking money for it, then we might want to take a look at that. Because as I pointed out earlier, what's you know we have legitimate business bricks and mortar businesses that pay licensing and pay you know significant fees, uh, property taxes, all these kind of things. Is it fair for them? What happens to those those businesses that are paying you know commercial property tax that are paying uh, business license fees to the city of Vancouver? Or are we undermining their business by allowing other businesses to have absolutely no regulation at all? By virtue of the fact that they're operating online, I think that's there's a fairness component there, and I, I do want to, you know, ensure that we're protecting our, our our other clients who are the business license payers and the commercial property tax payers, uh, and the bricks and mortar stores. So right. there's a balance that has to happen there. All right, we are out of time, uh, Councillor Fry. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate uh, you chatting with us this morning. Yeah. Absolutely a pleasure. And well, I mentioned uh, right off the bat earlier uh, today uh, after the 6 a.m. news, the reason why I'm a little bit tired this morning is because I stayed up a little bit too late last night reading a new book. It is called Against Death, 35 Essays on Living. And you might think, oh, that sounds very dark. And yes, there are some very moving stories in this book, but, and I will fully admit I have not read the whole thing, but what I have read, some fascinating stories as well. And I'm so pleased that the editor of the book, Ellie Kralji Gardner, is on the line with us now. Ellie, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting topic. It's something that obviously affects all of us, but the people that you have chosen or that have shared their stories in this book, well, I don't even know where to begin because they're such personal and intimate stories. It's true. They're an astounding group of authors, and some of them have, this is their first publication, and others have published uh, dozens of books. And as one of the contributors says, Death is really the great equalizer. It's the only example of complete gender equity that we have. <laughs> Definitely. Um, it starts with your essay called Origins. And uh, I was reading this, and, and, and you're partly to blame as to why I stayed up too late, <laughs> because I was reading it and couldn't, and then got into reading some more of them. Uh, I mean, even reading through, and I won't give it all away, what's in, what's in your essay, but you've been through a, a thing or two in your life. Sure. Well, they always say, write the book that you need. 
And when I was 41, I experienced a strange situation where spontaneously the lining in, of my artery tore and caused a blood clot to go to my brainstem. And I wrote about this experience in a long poem memoir called Trauma Head. And as I was going through this experience of healing from this, uh, I realized that I really needed a community of people who understood what was happening. Some of the people that I considered my most tender and empathetic friends weren't able to fully comprehend how altered I felt from this brush with mortality. And strangely enough, some of the people that I thought were the gruffest, most out of contact ones were the people who really made space for me and for my diminished capacities and really didn't question what I was going through. They just accepted it. So what I found was that I've, I noticed almost like a watermark on some people who have come close to death or have been living with some sort of a challenge that has made them ask these tough questions. And I wanted to go deeper into that and find those people. And certainly uh, you did. And so how did you find people who not only had had these experiences and and there's such a range, whether it's people dealing with their own death, their own imminent death, uh, people who feel like maybe they've cheated death. How were you able to find uh, these people with such amazing stories? Well, for one thing, uh, all of us do have some experience with death. And once you get people talking, the stories spill forth. Uh, The other thing is that I sent the call for submissions really far and wide, and I used word of mouth, and I asked people to talk to anybody that they knew. I sent uh, listservs. I posted things everywhere. I was particularly slow and careful in trying to elicit these submissions because I know that to ask people to talk about this is intense, and I didn't want to re-traumatize anybody, especially anyone from a marginalized community or anybody going through still the active triggers of what they're, they've been experiencing. Uh, which which I'm, I'm guessing people could, but it's also cathartic in a way, too, cause, because like you said, everybody has some story or some connection to this. It's true, and we don't talk about death in the way that we talk about other topics in, in, in our culture here in Canada. So I was very interested in that aperture of how can we just share information and how can we, I don't know, not normalize it, but how can we have a conversation that allows us to express our fears and our doubts and our confirmations and our excitements about this enormous change. Uh, Did you find a common thread with people in that uh, kind of coming out the other side, having faced this thing and then being in a position where you're writing about it or you're remembering it and sharing it? Was there a common thread in people in that they looked at things differently? I'm not sure that there's a common thread in terms of like a redemption narrative, because for some people, it absolutely isn't going to get better or they haven't. They haven't necessarily found, you know, the answer, capital A answer. I would say that the common thread is everybody goes through this reckoning idiosyncratically with their own uh, connections and ideas and moments of peace. Another thing is that I found that since the book came out or got into the contributors' hands, they have all been reacting to each other's stories in a way that I find most beautiful. They are confirmed and they feel part of something and they're learning from their co-contributors. So you've created somehow, you've created, although it's a, an anthology, it's also almost a, a support group. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny thing. You know, anthologies are beautiful. I've been at the center of this process on my own, working directly with these wonderful authors you know, for however long, and they're just coming into the fullness of recognizing they're part of something larger. And I guess that's the 
you know, if I had to get sort of um, gooey about it, I guess that's the point of this book. We are part of something larger, and we only have this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the contributors, uh, Jennifer Van Evra, a former colleague of mine, and I actually saw her post on Facebook about this when the book was coming out, and she made a reference to the fact that she rarely writes about personal experiences. So this was very new to her, and I felt like she she felt she'd kind of thrown herself out there for people uh, to read. Uh, was that the case for a lot of the contributors? Yes, absolutely. They, these are some of the most skilled communicators uh, that we have working in Canadian writing and, and um, broadcasting. And some of them have never uh, lifted the veil and spoken about this. And and we also have three contributors who passed away before they could see their pieces in print, but who were so engaged with this project that they gave me full editing capacity to shepherd their work to the page. Um, and I and I did, you know, there's a, a wonderful piece by Rabbi Qureshi, who I actually read about in a news story as a person who had come through cancer three times, this young woman. So I reached out to her, and she has never published a word before. This is her very first publication ever. And she contacted me and she, when she got the book in her hands and said, oh, my gosh, what have I done? You know, this seems so overwhelming, and now people are going to read it. And I said, relax. Every single person, whether they've published 40 books or, or zero books, has this experience when the, when the page opens to their piece, and it's out there for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jen Van Evra's piece is about uh, severe allergies, which I think a lot of people can relate to. And there's almost a bit of humor in it, but which is strange too when reading it because you remind yourself you're talking about death and death being around every corner. Um, I also read uh, Aislinn Hunter's piece last night, which is another piece kind of like yours where you're reading it thinking, oh my goodness, what else is going to happen mm-hmm. to this person? But but I suppose, were you surprised at all by the, the number of things people wrote about and how many things had happened to them? What was really interesting to me was the parody that I found in the, in the, in the um, situation. So, for example, I knew I didn't want a book that was only about health crises. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to make... There, there are wonderful anthologies about breast cancer, for example, but I didn't want to, um, to narrow it to just one cause or one situation. But what I found was that the contributors were showering me with these this range of things from, you know, um, dealing with suicide to opioid addiction to uh, congenital birth issues to um, spontaneous problems to circumstantial or sports related. And, and that really surprised me because I know that the advent of something like a peanut allergy, like what Jen has, um, we're beginning to speak about that in, in a more macro way. But there are lots of other life-threatening situations that people are walking around dealing with that we don't see them dealing with, that it's an invisibility. And I think that lack of understanding really creates barriers. Mm-hmm, definitely. And, and was that part of the goal or did that kind of happen in, in putting it together, the, the breaking down of the barriers? Well, I don't know. Selfishly, I really just wanted to know, how did other people get through this? What were their philosophical um, questions that they were able to face and maybe answer, and how did they use art or how did they use writing to get through this? What were their, what were the ways that they were realigned after coming so close to death? And did you find did you get the answers you were looking for? I think that it's an ongoing conversation. Definitely, the each person has found some sort of a moment of balance, and they're they're still here, and they're and the, and the ones who aren't here have left their words as a pathway to where they ended up. But um, I think for every single person, it's a it's a delicate balance. 
And did you come up with the title? I did. Yeah, I did. So against death can mean either that you're pressed up close against it intimately, as in a hug, or it can mean that you refute it, that you are absolutely 100% going to vote for staying. <laughs> which, which many of the contributors do. Yes, luckily. Um, is there any fear, and we're almost out of time, but, or I suppose people might be afraid to read this thinking, I've come through this, I've come through something, and like you said off the top, it might trigger something. What would you say to somebody who, who's afraid to read these stories? Well, these stories are also laced through with absolutely beautiful human connection and caring and birth and change. And this is what life is. So if you need to read it in small bite-sized chunks at breakfast rather than when you're alone going to bed at night, I understand that. But do take care of yourself whether or not you're reading this anthology. All right. It uh, is uh, fascinating as far as what I've read so far, and I will uh, finish reading it, but I think I'm going to have to read it in bits and pieces as well. But uh, (laughs) amazing stories. Uh, Ellie, thank you so much for joining us today and for editing the book. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for making space to speak about it. I appreciate it.